Pollock overruled. The 16th Amendment removed the precedent set by the Pollock decision. Professor Sheldon D. Pollock at the University of Delaware wrote. On February 25, 1913, in the closing days of the Taft administration, Secretary of State Philander C. Knox, a former Republican senator from Pennsylvania and Attorney General under McKinley and Roosevelt, certified that the amendment had been properly ratified by the requisite number of state legislatures. Three more states ratified the amendment soon after, and eventually the total reached 42. The remaining six states either rejected the amendment or took no action at all. Notwithstanding the many frivolous claims repeatedly advanced by so-called tax protesters, the 16th Amendment to the Constitution was duly ratified as of February 3, 1913. With that, the Pollock decision was overturned, restoring the status quo ante. Congress once again had the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes, from whatever source derived, without apportionment among the several states, and without regard to any census or enumeration. From William D. Andrews, Professor of Law, Harvard Law School. In 1913 the 16th Amendment to the Constitution was adopted, overruling Pollock, and the Congress then levied an income tax on both corporate and individual incomes. From Professor Boris Bitker, who was a tax law professor at Yale Law School. As construed by the Supreme Court in the Brushover case, the power of Congress to tax income derives from Article I, Section 8, Clause 1, of the original Constitution rather than from the 16th Amendment. The latter simply eliminated the requirement that an income tax, to the extent that it is a direct tax, must be apportioned among the states. A corollary of this conclusion is that any direct tax that is not imposed on income remains subject to the rule of apportionment. Because the 16th Amendment does not purport to define the term direct tax, the scope of that constitutional phrase remains as debatable as it was before 1913, but the practical significance of the issue was greatly reduced once income taxes, even if direct, were relieved from the requirement of apportionment. Professor Eric Jensen at Case Western Reserve University Law School has written, was a response to the income tax cases, Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, and it exempts only taxes on incomes from the apportionment rule that otherwise applies to direct taxes. Professor Calvin H. Johnson, a tax professor at the University of Texas School of Law, has written, The 16th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified in 1913, was written to allow Congress to tax income without the hobbling apportionment requirement. Pollock was itself overturned by the 16th Amendment as to apportionment of income, from Gale and Norton. Courts have essentially abandoned the permissive interpretation created in Pollock. Subsequent cases have viewed the 16th Amendment as a rejection of Pollock's definition of direct tax. The apportionment requirement again applies only to real estate and capitation taxes. Even if the 16th Amendment is not viewed as narrowing the definition of direct taxes, it at least introduces an additional consideration to analysis under the apportionment clause. For the court to strike an unapportioned tax, plaintiffs must establish not only that a tax is a direct tax, but also that it is not in the subset of direct taxes known as an income tax. From Alan O. Dixler. In Brushover, the Supreme Court validated the first post, 16th Amendment income tax. Chief Justice White, who is an associate justice had dissented articulately in Pollock, wrote for a unanimous court. Upholding the income tax provisions of the Tariff Act of October 3, 1913, Chief Justice White observed that the 16th Amendment did not give Congress any new power to lay and collect an income tax, rather, the 16th Amendment permitted Congress to do so without apportionment. Congress may impose taxes on income from any source without having to apportion the total dollar amount of tax collected from each state according to each state's population in relation to the total national population. In Wickoff v. Commissioner, the United States Tax Court said, It is immaterial, with respect to federal income taxes, 
whether the tax is a direct or an indirect tax. Mr. Wickoff relied on the Supreme Court's decision in Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, but the effect of that decision has been nullified by the enactment of the 16th Amendment. In Abrams v. Commissioner, the tax court said, Since the ratification of the 16th Amendment, it is immaterial with respect to income taxes, whether the tax is a direct or indirect tax. The whole purpose of the 16th Amendment was to relieve all income taxes when imposed from apportionment and from a consideration of the source whence the income was derived. Necessity of Amendment In the late 19th century and early 20th century, many legal observers believed that the Supreme Court had erred in designating some income taxes as direct taxes. The Supreme Court had previously rejected the argument that income taxes constituted direct taxes in Springer v. United States, 1881. Some legal scholars continue to question whether the Supreme Court ruled correctly in Pollock, but others contend that the original meaning of direct taxes did indeed include income taxes. Case law. The federal court's interpretations of the 16th Amendment have changed considerably over time and there have been many disputes about the applicability of the amendment. The Brushaber case. In Brushaber v. Union Pacific Railroad, 1916, the Supreme Court ruled that, 1. The 16th Amendment removes the Pollock requirement that certain income taxes, such as taxes on income derived from real property that were the subject of the Pollock decision, be apportioned among the states according to population. 2. The federal income tax statute does not violate the Fifth Amendment's prohibition against the government taking property without due process of law. 3. The federal income tax statute does not violate the Article I, Section 8, Clause 1 requirement that excises, also known as indirect taxes, be imposed with geographical uniformity. The Kerbaugh Empire Company case. In Bowers v. Kerbaugh Empire Company, 1926, the Supreme Court, through Justice Pierce Butler, stated, It was not the purpose or the effect of that amendment to bring any new subject within the taxing power. Congress already had the power to tax all incomes. But taxes on incomes from some sources had been held to be direct taxes within the meaning of the constitutional requirement as to apportionment. The amendment relieved that requirement and obliterated the distinction in that respect between taxes on income that are direct taxes and those that are not, and so put on the same basis all incomes from whatever source derived. Income has been taken to mean the same thing as used in the Corporation Excise Tax of 1909, in the 16th Amendment, and in the various Revenue Acts subsequently passed. After full consideration, this court declared that income may be defined as gain derived from capital, from labor, or from both combined, including profit gain through sale or conversion of capital. The Glenshaw Glass Case In Commissioner v. Glenshaw Glass Company, 1955, the Supreme Court laid out what has become the modern understanding of what constitutes gross income to which the 16th Amendment applies, declaring that income taxes could be levied on accessions to wealth, clearly realized, and over which the taxpayers have complete dominion. Under this definition, any increase in wealth, whether through wages, benefits, bonuses, sale of stock or other property at a profit, bets won, lucky fines, awards of punitive damages in a lawsuit, key TAM actions, are all within the definition of income, unless the Congress makes a specific exemption, as it has for items such as life insurance proceeds received by reason of the death of the insured party, gifts, bequests, devises and inheritances, and certain scholarships. Income taxation of wages, etc. Federal courts have ruled that the 16th Amendment allows a direct tax on wages, salaries, commissions, etc. without apportionment. The Penn Mutual Case Although the 16th Amendment is often cited as the source of the congressional power to tax incomes, at least one court has reiterated the point made in Brushaburn and other cases that the 16th Amendment itself did not grant the Congress the power to tax incomes, a power the Congress had since 1789, 
but only removed the possible requirement that any income tax be apportioned among the states according to their respective populations. In Penn Mutual Indemnity, the United States Tax Court stated, In dealing with the scope of the taxing power the question has sometimes been framed in terms of whether something can be taxed as income under the 16th Amendment. This is an inaccurate formulation, and has led to much loose thinking on the subject. The source of the taxing power is not the 16th Amendment, it is Article 1, Section 8, of the Constitution. The United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit agreed with the tax court, stating, It did not take a constitutional amendment to entitle the United States to impose an income tax. Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, 1895, only held that a tax on the income derived from real or personal property was so close to a tax on that property that it could not be imposed without apportionment. The 16th Amendment removed that barrier. Indeed, the requirement for apportionment is pretty strictly limited to taxes on real and personal property and capitation taxes. It is not necessary to uphold the validity of the tax imposed by the United States that the tax itself bears an accurate label. Indeed, the tax upon the distillation of spirits, imposed very early by federal authority, now reads and has read in terms of a tax upon the spirits themselves, yet the validity of this imposition has been upheld for a very great many years. It could well be argued that the tax involved here is an excise tax based upon the receipt of money by the taxpayer. It certainly is not a tax on property and it certainly is not a capitation tax, therefore, it need not be apportioned. We do not think it profitable, however, to make the label as precise as that required under the Food and Drug Act. Congress has the power to impose taxes generally, and if the particular imposition does not run afoul of any constitutional restrictions then the tax is lawful, call it what you will. The Murphy case. On December 22, 2006, a three-judge panel of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit vacated its unanimous decision, of August 2006, in Murphy v. Internal Revenue Service and United States. In an unrelated matter, the court had also granted the government's motion to dismiss Murphy's suit against the Internal Revenue Service. Under federal sovereign immunity, a taxpayer may sue the federal government, but not a government agency, officer, or employee, with some exceptions. The court ruled. Insofar as the Congress has waived sovereign immunity with respect to suits for tax refunds under, that provision specifically contemplates only actions against the United States. Therefore, we hold the IRS, unlike the United States, may not be sued eo nomine in this case. An exception to federal sovereign immunity is in the United States Tax Court, in which a taxpayer may sue the Commissioner of Internal Revenue. The original three-judge panel then agreed to rehear the case itself. In its original decision, the court had ruled that was unconstitutional under the 16th Amendment to the extent that the statute purported to tax, as income, a recovery for a non-physical personal injury for mental distress and loss of reputation not received in lieu of taxable income such as lost wages or earnings. Because the August 2006 opinion was vacated, the Court of Appeals did not hear the case on bank. On July 3, 2007, the court, through the original three-judge panel, ruled, 1. That the taxpayer's compensation was received on account of a non-physical injury or sickness. 2. A gross income under Section 61 of the Internal Revenue Code does include compensatory damages for non-physical injuries, even if the award is not an accession to wealth. 3. That the income tax imposed on an award for non-physical injuries is an indirect tax, regardless of whether the recovery is restoration of human capital, and therefore the tax does not violate the constitutional requirement of Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4, that capitations or other direct taxes must be laid among the states only in proportion to the population. 4 that the income tax imposed on an award for non-physical injuries does not violate the constitutional requirement of Article I, 
Section 8, Clause 1, that all duties, imposts and excises be uniform throughout the United States. 5, that under the doctrine of sovereign immunity, the Internal Revenue Service may not be sued in its own name. The court stated that although the Congress cannot make a thing income which is not so in fact, it can label a thing income and tax it, so long as it acts within its constitutional authority, which includes not only the 16th Amendment but also Article I, Sections 8 and 9. The court ruled that Ms. Murphy was not entitled to the tax refund she claimed, and that the personal injury award she received was within the reach of the congressional power to tax under Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution even if the award was not income within the meaning of the 16th Amendment. See also the Penn Mutual case cited above. On April 21, 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to review the decision by the Court of Appeals. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.